Welcome to all of us, but especially welcome to those of you who are overcoming difficulty to be here this morning. That is a larger percentage of people than normal, and I am amazed that God is faithful to see us through difficult times and allow us to come together to worship nonetheless. That's pretty incredible. It's hard to schedule anything in this day. When we set about to schedule being here together to worship God, to hear from God, and we were able to do that despite many difficulties over the last four or five days, and some of it in the last 24 hours, Somebody, some, people, some people just literally left the emergency room and came right here. And so we are grateful that God has seen us through, and we will praise Him for it, and we'll ask Him to work as He sees fit, as we try to reach new heights in Jesus. Don't forget the memory verse of the month. It's a big one, and the sermon overlaps this verse today, so I won't hit it too heavily, but I do want to remind us, it says, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And if you look at that word consecrate, it means to make yourself different or holy. And, and your translation that might actually say sanctify yourselves. God is different than people. And so people try to be like God. And if we are like God, then we will by nature be different than people, right? And so uh, he was telling them to consecrate themselves and be different because God was going to do something amazing amongst them. Okay? And so that's all I'm going to say on that right now. So we're going to hit that verse in the sermon today for those of you who are in here. And for the children's workers, I encourage you to listen to it on the podcast online. It should be there. It's coming up. We're, we're at about the 48 to 72 hour range. We're coming up about two to three days after we're done here. Also, for those of you who are version users, in case I forget later, the sermon's on version today as an event. So for the version users, we'll look back. All right, let's pray together, and then we'll jump back into a little bit more worship. Caleb, you want to pray for us? You want to read our prayer? Okay. Can we go up here and do it? Ask God to help us, okay? Go ahead. Guys, people say.
come to that moment in time in our service where I ask you to be thinking over the last week about the Word of God, about how God might be speaking to you, what you see, what you read. Uh, when, did, when did the Holy Spirit say to you, hey, pay attention to that? Now, a word of caution before we begin, I encourage you to do that this last week, and I was sort of hopeful, and I even mentioned at that time that we might have a lot of folks who had something to say during this time, and if we do, then at that point we're only going to take a few of them, three or four of them, and we'll do the rest at the beginning of the sermon time. So if you're a children's worker, so you will not be in the room because you're working with children at some capacity today, but you have an inspirational moment, you have something that you want to say, that we'd like to let you go first, so that you don't miss your opportunity to speak out. So is there a children's worker that has a word to share? Oh, I think there's an inspirational reading in that event right there. Right? A moment, uh, okay, anyone else? Okay, open to anyone at this point. Then Miss Chris first, and then Kate. Don't let me die. I'm too thirsty. I'm too thirsty. 
you were speaking, there were two things that the Holy Spirit sent me. One of my, one of my got after I was at the hospital. I was thinking about the colonoscopy. Yeah, and you have to drink this nasty stuff, and they got to clean you all out so they can make sure everything is, you know, nothing's there, it's not supposed to be there, or whatever. And I was thinking about how, as we go, you know, the stuff that they're cleaning out—that's the stuff that is left over from when you ate your food. You know, so you can eat, and then. There's stuff that stays in us for normal living. We eat, everybody eats food. There's stuff that stays in us for normal living. And we got to clear all that out so you can check and make sure everything's working okay. And I was thinking about that in relation to Christianity. I was thinking about how sometimes you need a cleansing. And of course, then my mind goes to Joshua 3 5. It says, Consecrate yourself. The world will be one as you need to tomorrow. Uh, but the point is, I was thinking about how we sometimes need a cleaning out. We need to stop and look at what we have absorbed, what we have taken into us, what becomes part of us, and say, no, hey, that doesn't really belong. We let that go so God can fill me up, so God can work on my inside and change me. I was thinking about that as I was on the way home from the hospital. And then you were just, um, you mentioned the eagle thing, flying with eagles. We were driving in the car, and Ariana said, hey, look, an eagle. And I looked up there, and guess what it was? It was a turkey vulture. And I thought about that, I was like, that's not an eagle. And I thought, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was thinking about how I used to think turkey vultures were eagles. And then I thought about how easy it would be to think we're sore with the eagles. And look over and I go, oh, that's not an eagle at all. It's, not, it's, it's pretty easy to get confused and somebody that just looks good or somebody else that can fly or seems to be doing well, we want to run with them instead of running with Christ and doing the things that we're supposed to do. So those two things that came to mind as I was listening to you. So I got to say this. Um, that test I had, I couldn't pronounce it. But it wasn't what they thought it was. My knee is not out of position. And it's something, it's something else that I can say. This is him.
I always feel terrible afterwards. Like it might be fun for the moment, but then I feel horrible afterwards. But I had this warm, good feeling because I had a really bad afternoon yesterday. And just being able to fellowship with you guys and uplifting my day, I forgot what I was so upset about. And I was able to worship God with my family. So it was awesome. I love it. Okay, well, you got one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's on the screen? Yeah. So, my mom sent me this video like a few months ago, and it just makes me laugh every time I watch it. So, you're going to bring us a laugh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're in for such a treat. John Christ is one of my good buddies. I've been touring with him for a couple years now. He's headliner stuff. He's working so hard, and he's so good, and he's just, just getting ready. I'm hoping for him tonight. Uh, he's your favorite comedian. Uh, he's a wrecking ball, so just... <laughs>
Let's pray together. Let's thank God for good Christian fellowship and for working with us. And uh, we'll sing a couple more songs of worship before we leave today. Father heaven, thank you so much for being so real to us and for building in us something that we will endure. So that those Christian songs, they do bring to mind the truths behind them, the love and the joy that you have for us. We've been beaten up, attacked, because uh, we've done some attacking, and all of that needs to go into the past. This needs to be forgotten and released, and we can be at peace with you because of your son, and we're grateful for it. And then, Lord, I thank you that you've shown us that it's important to spend time together as brothers and sisters in Christ. You've spoken to us. Lord, I pray that you continue to do that, and that more and more of us will hear from you or see something or share something with another believer that will help to move all of us in the right direction. Help us. As we take up the tithes and offerings now, we pray that these monies which you have provided to us, we're just sort of relinquishing them back into the control of the church and of your kingdom of advance, that the monies will go to the very ends of the earth and reach people the gospel. We know that some of what we get will We'll buy Bibles or fund missionaries in darkest Africa. And the gospel to share to be shared in places where it's illegal to do so. And then people here flee to be fed. And this place to be taken care of and our, our needs to be met. And we pray that you'll do all those things and many more, whatever it is that you desire. And you'll grow us and our reach. All for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.
with that inspirational moment. Hold on. All right, go.
Anybody else? Here we go. Well, just tell us about this one. Uh, I, I have the lyrics, so I'm just going to read it. It's going to be that one. It's a song from Lincoln Park. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the lead singer for many, many years suffered with alcoholism and depression, and he ended up committing suicide. And one of the songs he wrote, and I've read a lot about it, a lot of the songs he wrote expressed how he felt, and no one really believed how he felt. A lot of people thought it was just an act. Um, the song is called Heavy. It says, I don't like my mind right now. Stacking up problems that are so unnecessary. Wish that I could slow things down. I want to let go, but there's comfort in the pain. And I drive myself crazy thinking everything's about me. Yeah, I drive myself crazy because I can't escape gravity. I'm holding on. Why is everything so heavy? Holding on so much more than I can carry. I keep dragging around with bringing me down. If I just let go, I'd be set free. Holding on, why is everything so heavy? You say that I'm paranoid, but I'm pretty sure the world is out to get me. It's not like I made the choice to let my mind stay so messy. I know that I'm not the center of the universe, but, I, but you keep spinning around me just the same. I know I'm not the center of the universe, but you keep spinning around me just the same. I'm holding on, why is everything so heavy? Holding on, so much more than I can carry. I keep dragging around, it's bringing me down. If I just let go, I'd be set free. Holding on, why is everything so heavy? And it just repeats again. But something that I picked up from that song is, you know, we had that problem a lot. We hold on to what drags us down, and it's and it's right. It's unnecessary. We keep bringing up thoughts and our past life, and all it does is it brings us down. It beats us up, and then we end up getting depressed about it, and then it's so hard to let it go. And it's hundred percent true. If we just let it go, we'd be set free. But we find comfort in it for some stupid unknown reason. But our ourselves, we find comfort in or at least I know I do a lot of times, that I find comfort in how I used to be. Because for more than half of my life, that's all I know. And it's really easy to get, to keep those thoughts bringing back. And all I want to say is, just let it go, give it to God. And then you'll see what it means to be set free. You'll see what it means to have a life that you can joy instead of being so down and out about stuff that happened in the past because you can't change it. You can't change the past. You can only you can only learn from it and you can change your future. And if you let it go and you give it to God, your future can change so great that you can't even begin to understand how great it can change. A lot of times if God uses music, and uh, sometimes it's the, the people that have faced the same difficulties that we have that really speak to us, and sometimes it's the Holy Spirit working in them, and sometimes it's, you know, if you're a rock song that has literally nothing to do with God or nothing to do with Christianity, and you find in there a message, and it's because God's speaking to their heart and trying to move them in a certain direction, and they 
I'm not encouraging you to listen to some secular music or whatever. I think, I think it's wise to keep your mind clean as best you can. But at the same time, there are messages everywhere. The message of the gospel is everywhere. Uh, it's this real thing. Anyone else before we do this? Okay, got one here and then one there. Uh, last week, I made an effort to call my children and text them and let them know that I am sorry for all the things that I didn't do and the things that I did do. The thing is, with children, I don't think they always understand. A lot of times they're raised up. Well, I didn't like this as a kid, so I'm not going to do that as an adult. What I didn't do is because Maybe it was done to me, or I didn't like it. So for them to keep walking around with my mom like this one, the she like me, it gets to be tiring to the point where I don't want to deal with it. As a, as a child, I can take responsibility for my children as children, but as an adult, it's on them. And the difference is a lot of times when people are holding on to old things, they don't know how distinguish one thing from another. As an adult, you can move forward. As a child, you're stuck. If you keep on holding on to yesterday, yesterday is gone. It will never change. That is the book. That's where it was written. But your future is your own. And the problem is, a lot of times kids will tell me, I remember when you did this. Well, I remember a lot of things myself. But I can't keep bringing it up. But as children, when your children are grown, Like his laugh will make you laugh. 
his whole attitude and personality is just, it's, it's fire. Yeah, what a gift. Yes. Especially when you were going through something. Right. Praise God. All right. Anybody else? Okay, well, let's hope God speaks to us as much through his word as he has done all week long. And uh, we're going to look at uh, Joshua chapter 3. You could say amen or give me a hoot or a holler as I go to Joshua chapter 3. Thank you. This is the word of God. And uh, whether or not you had an inspirational moment to, or this week sometime, a moment where God said to you, hey, pay attention to that or whatever, I guarantee you that what is written here was written for our edification. That means it was written to, written to lift us up and change us in the direction of Jesus, in the direction of God. And so we're going to look at uh, Joshua chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. We only have six verses. And then I only have a couple of supporting verses. So we don't have a big long text, okay? But there was a couple of things that I saw in here, and it really comes down to one thing that underlies those things that really touched my heart. And I've been affected by it ever since I've been here this morning, and I'm grateful. So I hope I can make it clear to you. I'm going to try to. Um, it's not super complex. It's not really confusing. It wasn't difficult, but it was something that I kind of maybe was overlooking a little bit. And so I just it came as a reminder and an important reminder. So we're going to go right to the text, all right? So I'm reading from Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And this is what it says. Now, I'm just going to begin reading. If you're not sure about what's happening at this point, we've been in Joshua for a bit. And so I encourage you to do a little research in the background. And I may give you a little bit, but here we go. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. Now, Shittim was the place that they were camped previously, and so what happened in the previous two chapters basically happened there. Okay? This is the gathered armies of the Lord, essentially, and uh, they marched this day, the day that we're reading about uh, in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1, 12 miles to be on the shores of the Jordan River. The Jordan River is the eastern border of the Promised Land, and at this point in time, it is flowing good. And so to look at that river, you would not think that you're going to cross that river this time of year. People that live there even to this day, almost thousands of years after these events, they don't cross the river during that time of year, uh, except maybe at a bridge, you know, a large bridge that's been constructed because the, the river, you'd be, uh, you wouldn't even want to swim in it. You'd be washed a mile downstream before you could get across. It's like that. Okay, and so they, this is that type of day and they move to the edge. They've been told they're going to go into the promised land. They know it's coming soon. Um, but they're responding in faith as they move from Shittim over to the edge of the Jordan. And I want to say to you that sometimes God's people have to move into position to be blessed in the way that God wants to bless them. Now, it's not that God isn't going to do what God wants to do, okay, regardless. But if God intends to send you a blessing at a point in time in a certain way and you don't go there to receive it, then whoever is there, and possibly nobody might be there, to receive it. And so they had to move to the edge of the Jordan River, even though they knew they couldn't probably cross it yet. They figured God would have to do something amazing before that was even possible. And they had to do that in faith, to move into position, to do the work that God wanted them to do. But notice that they did not have the power to do it. They did not have the power to take the Promised Land, and they did not have the power to cross the Jordan River. Yet they had to move into position as commanded by the Lord, to do what it forgot, so God could do what he was about to do. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp. And so there they're camped alongside the Jordan. Now remember back in chapter 2, uh, chapter, end of chapter 1, 
they were commanded to be gathering supplies for this invasion. At this point in time, Israel is still receiving the manna. If you don't know what the manna is, I encourage you to go back and read about it. Basically, it's a coriander seed type thing that comes with the dew, and you can make bread, you can make uh, anything you can make uh, with wheat, you could make with the manna. And the word manna literally means, what is it? Which implies to me the first day they went out and said, what is it? What is that? And that's what they named it. And so they, they, they're still receiving it. And, and coming up here shortly, they won't receive it anymore, but right now they're still receiving it. But they were told to gather provisions for the invasion, which means food. And they are nomads, and they are scavengers, and they have been all over this area gathering for three days. And now the commanders are moving amongst them. The officers went through the midst of the camp. Verse 3 says, And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. And so they give them the sign. They tell them what the sign is going to be. So when the priests pick up the ark and start moving, that's when you're going to go. And we've got to notice that here in Scripture, and we see this in a lot of places, that the ark of the covenant has been made a symbol of God's presence. Now we know that when it sits down in the temple eventually, that they will literally refer to it as the footstool of God. It is the physical place on earth in which God touched the earth and earth civilization. And so now this is a symbol, it's symbolic of God's presence amongst them. And so it will be God that will lead them out. And remember that God told them it would be Joshua that would be their leader, their battle leader, their director, their commander, everything like that. But now it, Joshua sends the officers amongst the camp to say, when the Ark of the Covenant moves out, you will all gather to follow out. You leave the place where you're camped now and follow out after it. And the symbol is the Ark of the Covenant as the presence of the Lord in between them. Notice who carries the Ark of the Covenant. And we can get back into Deuteronomy and the commands and how they were supposed to do all of this and only certain people could do this and so on. But the point is the priests will be carrying the Ark out in front. So they're going to carry the presence of the Lord. Now in theory, the priests have done some things and, they, and the, the primary thing that they've done is they've been chosen by God, which wasn't really their action, was it? It was God's action. God chose them to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to carry the symbol of the presence of God. Now, they also discipline themselves, and they take a lot of steps. They cleanse themselves. They follow a lot of rules, if you will, to be prepared to be a Levitical priest. And they will carry this symbolic, this Ark, which is symbolic of the presence of the Lord, out. And when they carry it out, the people are supposed to follow it out. Follow out the symbol of the presence of the Lord. Notice that God can use the symbol of his presence to move his people in the right direction. However, it does not follow that man can use the symbol of the presence of the Lord to force people to follow or to set the direction. Let me talk about that for one second just so we make sure I'm not, I'm not confusing the issue. We can say, God said this to me and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you would be right to do that. If you have a direction from the Lord and you are doing what it is that God has told you to do, that would be right. Of course, you want to confirm that it's of the Lord, that you're not confused by an evil spirit, that you're not being pushed by some motivation that's selfish or worldly in nature. But if you know that God has told you to do something, then you go and do what it is that God has told you to do. Now, what you can't do then is go back to what God told you to do 
and try to force others to do what God told you to do. Well, God told me to do this, so now you have to do that. That's you taking the symbol of God's presence with you and trying to apply that to force others to do what it is that you have been told to do. Now, that's not, we're not talking about Scripture, right? Scripture applies evenly and level-handedly to everyone. So if the Bible clearly says, for example, thou shalt not bear false witness or thou shalt not murder, that command applies to all of us. None of us should bear false witness and none of us should murder. But if God has given you a specific calling on your life, something that you are supposed to be doing, then you don't get to turn that calling around and tell others they have to do what it is that you are told to do. Go ahead. Right. And you don't everybody else to exactly. That's a perfect illustration, and there are many of them. You know what God has told you to do. Let's be frank. Now you can go to read the Bible, and the Bible will tell you what to do, and that is a that's what's called prevenient grace. That was given to all of us. Prevenient means before it was given to all of us before we ever got saved. The direction was there. We just weren't following it. We didn't care to do what God told us to do, or we only cared to do part of what God told us. Now, if you're a believer and you love the Lord, you want to do everything that God has told you to do, and God may actually lead you to do things that are outside the Scripture, never anything that's sin, never anything that contradicts the, the body of what he tells us to do. He's not going to tell you, well, do this. Now I'm telling you, you don't have to. You go and lie for me, or you go and murder for me, or you go and gossip for me. Right? God's not going to do that, because those things are contrary to the provenient grace, the grace that he gave in the first place, which is his word. But he could command you to do something, if you take that command and then apply it, to everyone, that would be wrong. Another example is more symbolic, the direction of the church. So in the church, for example, the church has certain things in Scripture that we've been told to do. Now, we're a different kind of a church. We're a church, and we have things we've been told to do, and then we've highlighted a couple of things that as a church we know we're supposed to do. One of those things is to grow in the Lord, right? We're supposed to learn more about how to live for God. We're supposed to study. We're supposed to work and reach out to learn more about God, right? Okay. What if we said this of every church in America, that any church that doesn't have that theme to learn more, grow more, pursue God the way we do is not actually a church? Could we not have a church somewhere in the world that is called simply and purposefully to do compassion ministries to the community around them and spread the gospel? And that's all they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be busy every day from the moment they get up to the time they go to bed. Would they be dishonoring God or disobeying God if that's what they're supposed to do? No, because that's in line with Scripture. Now, if they said, I don't need to know any more about God. I know everything I need to know about God. I'm a, I'm a compassionate person. I'm sharing the gospel. I know everything I need to know about God. And they did not intentionally work to learn more about God. Could we then say they're not Christian? Could we then say they're not followers of God? No, they might actually be right. Because they're given in their community what they're supposed to be doing. And they're doing it. And if you have everything you need to do, then you're doing it. And this is a famous line by Rick Warren once said, the last thing most people need to do is another Bible study. What most people need to do is to put into practice what they already know. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. 
Amen. Amen. Well, then I would definitely do it. Anything the Lord has told me to do. All right, so we're going to continue with this text, but I wanted you to see that. You can't take that which is symbolic of God's presence that, that could lead you and turn around and make it go the way you want it to go or make it force others to be what you want them to be, okay? All right, my, the fan blew my page. I'm back. All right, here we go. Joshua chapter 3, now beginning in verse 4. Almost done with the text already. However... There shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. There is a bunch in this verse that you need to see. First of all, a cubit is, is the distance from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow. And that is, tends to be around 18 inches. That's what a cubit literally is. And so this is 3,000 feet. So they're going to follow the Ark of the Covenant out, but they have to keep it over a half mile in front of them. Why? Well, we already said it's being used as a sim symbolic of God's presence. What's the problem with coming into God's presence? If it's symbolic of God's presence, what's the problem with coming into God's presence? Go ahead. You could die, right? You're not as holy as you think you are. People are not as holy as they think they are. Now, this changes with Jesus, and we'll get there. But let's talk about the people that were there that day. Even though they were desirous to see God work in their midst. And, and even though God had said he would, and he would work in their midst, the, the Ark of the Covenant representing the presence of God, if they came close to the Ark, this is not about touching. We already know that there's a story in the Bible right, where a man touches the Ark of the Covenant with an, un, an impure motive, and he's killed instantly. We know that back in the day, uh, Aaron's two sons offered illegitimate fire just in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, and they were killed instantly. Okay, so we know already, if you get too close to this thing, it's dangerous. It is the holiness symbolized of God. And so to get there would be dangerous. Now, but this is 3,000 feet over half a mile. And by the way, they're on broken terrain and hills, which means at one point in time I read this text and I said, well, you know, there was a lot of them. And so probably they did that so they could all see at any one time. Because if everybody gets too close, then only the people in front can see, right? Except that actually I looked at the terrain that's involved here. You realize that at a half a mile... Most of them probably couldn't see the Ark of the Covenant as it advanced. And that's interesting. They had to keep it over a half mile away, and there you can only see a couple hundred yards, and then the ridge or the hill or whatever would be blocking it as they were moving down towards Jordan. Now, once you get down to the, or the Jordan, the water flattens out, at, or the land flattens out, and that might change. The point is this. Hey, the point is this. You have to stay at a distance from this symbolic representation of the holiness of God because God is holy and you are not. The second thing I want you to see in there then is that they were going to go away. God was going to take them away that they had not seen. Remember I told you that this is a huge body of men, huge army, right? And they're scavengers and nomads. And so if you put about a million men in one place and send them out for food, first of all, how far do you think they're going to go? find food. They're going to go as far as they can in a day for sure. Right? Because you got to spread out. The thousand guys that are walking with you when you find that berry bush are going to make pretty quick work of it. You follow? So they spread out over this whole area. 
I submit to you that they could walk more than 12 miles in a day. They were healthy men. They could do that. And so they've already been to now where they're camping. They've been over this entire region. They've been every way that they could possibly go and tried everything that they could possibly try. And now God says, I'm going to take you by a way that you have not seen. The Ark of the Covenant will lead you by a way that you have not seen. Now, you might want to say it's the way across the river. But that's not really what's implied here. They all know that there's going to be a bizarre happenstance with the river, and they're probably just thinking God's going to part the river. He did with the Red Sea way back in the day. Even all the people that lived in the land, remember Rahab said, we all have heard how God 40-plus years ago parted the Red Sea for you. So not only did they all know, but Joshua's men all knew that, so they figured God was going to do that. So when he says, you're going to take you by a way that you have not yet seen, he's not talking about the parting of the river. He's talking about a pathway in the hills, a marching way that they have not seen. And that's just bizarre that we can do in our best effort everything that we can, that we can cover all the ground and go everywhere that there is to go. And yet when God begins to lead us, we go a way that we have not yet seen. Is that not amazing? Because God can put it right in front of you. And if you're not letting him lead, you'll walk right past it. God would take them by a way that they had not seen. These men who were very proficient with overland navigation. These men who were very diligent with searching the land for resources. These men who had been now for days gathering resources in preparation for God to do his work amongst them would now go by a way that they had not yet seen. Two verses left. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. This is our memory verse for the month of September. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. It's an interesting word there that's translated in the New American Standard as consecrate. Uh, elsewhere in the King James, for example, it's sanctify, and you may get one other possibility. But the bottom line is they were to do some work. They were to change some things about themselves in preparation for God to do the works, the amazing things that he was going to do among them. Now that's interesting because just the same as the Ark of the Covenant was representative of the presence of God's Holy of God's Holy Spirit presence on earth, right? Just as that Ark of the Covenant was representative of his presence, the works are representative of God's presence. You can accept that, right? Jesus said, if you won't believe me, believe the works that I do. A person who does a miraculous work, immediately people are going, what the heck is going on? There's some powerful stuff here, right? When somebody lays hands on you and you're healed, you go, that's amazing, right? Did you say something, Grandma? Grandma, did you want to say something? Right. So, the works speak of God like the Ark of the Covenant speaks of God. Now, here's a problem, isn't it? Don't we have a problem? You can't have the Ark of the Covenant amongst you stay 3,000 feet away. But tomorrow, God is going to do amazing wonders amongst you. Not 3,000 feet away, but amongst you. And the works represent God the same as the Ark of the Covenant represents God. So if we can't come into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, and let's just say it this way, because we are unclean, unclean in comparison to God, what happens when God does his works amongst us? Well, the natural extension is we're in trouble. We have a problem because we're unclean. We're unclean so that we can't go close to the Ark of the Covenant. And now the power, the same power that God is, is exhibiting through the Ark of the Covenant will now be in and amongst us. 
And so they are told, consecrate yourselves. Now, this is tough stuff here. Hang on with me. Follow me for a minute. They were going to do a work that was going to prepare them for God to work amongst them. And the work is symbolized or included all in a single word, consecrate or sanctify. And it means to be different or to be different like God, to be holy. But this was a work that they were commanded to do. You follow? Now, we as Christians know you cannot get saved by works. The Bible clearly says that. I'll come back to that point in a minute, my conclusion. But at the same time, they were commanded to do work. And if they don't do this work, if they do not consecrate themselves, and then God does his work amongst them, then what do you think will happen? Well, we've already said, they could be destroyed, right? Once upon a time, God said, I'm not going to go in with you after all, lest my anger burn over and consume you as a people. So God has already told them that it is possible, and now they're led to consecrate themselves or make themselves holy. But the question looms, can a person really make themselves holy? And the answer, we know. What is the answer? Christian, can a person really make themselves holy? No, they can't. A person cannot really make themselves holy. So then why are they commanded to be different when God is going to do works amongst them? It's not going to make them clean. It's not going to make them right. right. But if they do take the step of consecrating themselves, then what does that say? What's true about them if they go, hey, we better take some steps because God is going to do something amazing amongst us tomorrow. What are they saying? They're admitting they know they're not clean, step one. What's the second thing? Okay. Shorten up the thought. They have faith. They believe. They believe that God is going to do something amazing amongst them. They realize they're unclean, and they know that God is going to do something amazing amongst them. And so they take the steps to sanctify and consecrate themselves. And you could say this. I mean, this would be modern language. The best they could. Right? No one's perfect. They weren't going to be perfect. They weren't going to be complete. They weren't going to be holy like God is holy. But they were going to be more holy like God is holy, more clean. They were going to take steps. And the steps that they were going to take were going to rise out of their recognition of their need to be made holy and his ability to make them holy. Their need to be made holy and his ability to do amazing works amongst them and believing in the promise that he had said he would do amazing works amongst them. It is the ABCs of salvation. That's true. We admit, we believe, and we commit. And by the way, that would be essentially sanctifying yourself before the Lord. Now, it doesn't save you. It's not going to do it. It's not going to save your soul. God has to act. But this is the promise of God. If you realize where you are in your unholiness, and you take steps, believing in faith that he will do something, and you commit yourself to take ongoing steps, and I will continue as the Lord leads me to take steps, then he will always act. He is faithful to keep his promises. Almost done with the text. Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. I submit to you that if they did not consecrate themselves, they would have been terrified. If they did not consecrate themselves on the day of his action, they might have been destroyed. Verse 6 says, and we'll end here, And Joshua spoke to the priests, so spoke to those, and 
Here, when I say priests, that they are the people chosen by God who have already taken steps, daily taken steps, to consecrate themselves before the Lord. Okay? And he says to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. And thus begins, in this moment in time, begins their journey into the Promised Land. There's a few things I want you to see in this text. The first one is, just as with the Israelites, your story to this moment in time that brings you here today has supplied you with all of the evidence that you need. And I want to say to you, because of where you sit right now, because of the text that we're reading right now, I think this is probably true. That God has already provided you with not only the best evidence, but the only evidence that you're ever going to get. You might get it again. You might, he might repeat and say to you again, I love you. He might repeat and say, do miracles again in your life. He might repeat and call you to a place of hearing the gospel again in your life. But the bottom line is that God has given you all of the evidence that is necessary for you to decide what you're going to do today. Don't discount or misinterpret the evidence. You discount the evidence by saying, well, I don't really have to do anything. Clearly, God is who God is, and I am who I am. He is a different being than me, and God is holy, 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 and I am not, not, not. And I'm not going to do anything about being holy, because I can never be like God anyway, so I'm trusting fully in His grace. And this is how we wind up with, like, the man I, I, I spoke with a uh, week before last, and I said, uh, I shared the gospel with him, and I asked him to accept Jesus Christ as Lord, and said, he said, oh, you're talking about being saved. And I said, yes, I'm talking about being saved. I guess that's true, as long as you mean the same thing I do when you say that, because I have to use that word with them. And I don't, always, I don't often use that word when I'm talking to people, because that's a Christian word. You think it's not, but it is. It's a Christian word. When you say saved, it doesn't mean the same thing to other people than it does to you or I. All right? So I said, as long as it means the same thing when you say it as it does when I say it, then yes, that's what I'm talking about, being saved. He said, oh, I've done that four times already. And that's where you wind up at. Because being saved just means saying the right words and trusting, I'm trusting in God. At a certain moment in time, I'm trusting in God. And so I trusted in God, and then I trusted in God again, and then I tr I've trusted in God four times ever. Trusted in God four times ever so much that I got dunked underwater four times ever so much. I joined four churches, and I, I even went to church for a few weeks each time. And so I must be saved. It's, it's all a bunch of hooey. It's what the enemy is doing to confuse the issue, and it doesn't have anything to do with that. You cannot discount the evidence that you have seen, which is that God wants to be in you, and he wants to be near you, and he wants to be with you, and he wants to be working on you daily. Not Sundays, or Sundays and Tuesdays, or maybe an extra day or two a week, or just when you're in a tight spot, or just when you need to pray for him for a miracle. But every day, this is what God desires. And according to what we're reading in this text, if God wants to work miracles and wonders in your life every day, you're not worthy of that. You go back to the ABCs of salvation and realize that you are in danger of destruction if God comes to work a wonder in your life, whether you have claimed the name of Jesus verbally or not. If God comes to work a wonder in your life and you're not taking steps to be sanctified, steps to be consecrated... I understand inside the Lord, and if you're saved, protected by Jesus, I get that. But those who claim to be protected by Jesus and aren't taking these steps, that's a contradiction. Because God wants to work just not when you say, oh, I love Jesus. Not just, not just when you say, oh, I'll pray for you. Not just when you say, I want, to, I want to sing a worship song. But every day. He wants to work wonders in us every day. And we are not prepared for that. And so I think when we say, oh, I don't feel God's presence sometimes, I wonder why God hasn't done this or that or the other thing. 
which I thought he was going to do, which his word seems to promise me he's going to do. Sometimes it's because you have not taken the steps that you were supposed to take. You have not moved to the place that you were supposed to move to. You have not done the things that he called you to do. Or you have not enacted certain spiritual disciplines to be prepared for God to work in you. And if he worked in you now, if he did what he promised now, it would be extremely painful. And God doesn't want to cause you pain. So he's holding back those same wonders and miracles until you recognize your need, until you take steps out of your need to be holy and allow him to then make you holy enough to receive his wonders. You can't misinterpret the evidence either. Some people do that. Difficult situations arise and they say, well, I've been through some difficulty. The enemy must really be trying to knock me down. And they claim the name of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with those statements. They're all true. But if the reason that you're suffering and in difficulty is not the enemy, you've got a real problem, don't you? Because you're attributing to the enemy the works of the Lord is chastising you, trying to bring you around to see his way of it. You cannot misinterpret the events of your life or misapply them. You have to actually realize that God wants to be in your life doing wonders every day. The evidences are clear. Acts chapter 17, Paul says to the Areopagus that God has ordered every one of our lives where we'll live and how our lives will go in order that we might grope around for him and finding him, realize that he was never far from us. And I submit to you, always waiting to do amazing wonders, and we just weren't ready, weren't allowing it, weren't opening the door to him. Simon the sorcerer saw the amazing powers that the Holy Spirit brought into the disciples, the apostles, and he said, I'll pay you to give me the ability to lay on hands and give somebody the Holy Spirit. And they said to him, not only will you not receive it this day, but you are cursed. You're now under the curse of God. See, he misinterpreted what he saw. He thought there was a great gift to be purchased, and you can't do that. Instead, he should have surrendered, and God had willingly given him the same gift that he had tried to barter for. The seven sons of Sceva saw the power of the disciples to rebuke demons, and they brought in the name of Paul and Jesus. And the demons, finally, they ran into one they couldn't deal with. And remember, they had some success rebuking demons, just bringing in the names of Paul and Jesus, not even and doing other things, probably burning candles and whatever, and they were or choking chickens or whatever they were doing, and they were they were kicking out demons, and they were actually having some success. And then they finally came up against one that was a little bit too much for them. And the demon said to them, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who are you? And then beat them within an inch of their life. So they fled the room naked because they had misinterpreted the evidence and then misapplied the power of God, calling names at demons. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has given you the ability to rebuke evil spirits and demons. And if you don't have that ability, you can't buy it. You can't wheedle your way to getting it. You can't enact a different plan. There is one way for God to take you to the place of freedom. It is a way that you have not seen. It is a way that you cannot orchestrate, but God can. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about people who have come to follow the Lord and then kind of walk away from what they've learned. Let's go there and look at that one. Hebrews chapter 10. Some of this you all know, maybe, if you've read it. If you have it, you can read the whole book later today if you want. It's not that long. Hebrews chapter 10. I'll get there in a minute. In the book of Hebrews, 
in chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Let's start at the beginning of the sentence. 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, believe what you believe and speak it without wavering. Don't tire, don't give up, don't back off. You believe what you believe, speak it, live it. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to good, to, I'm sorry, to love and good deeds. Let's figure out how we can all help each other move forward and do loving and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together. In other words, we shouldn't part ways and not come back together. We should still worship together. We should still serve together. We should still live and give together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, in other words, after you know what God has done through Jesus, and you go on and sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. God would give us one way, that is Jesus, and that's it. And if you spit on the memory of Jesus, well then, let's see what it says. Verse 27. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and was insult has insulted the Spirit of grace? We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what Paul, what probably not Paul, actually, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that we as a people now have actions to take after we are saved to essentially sanctify ourselves. You can never sanctify yourself to be holy, to be saved. You can never sanctify yourself to be like God. You can never take your own lessons that you learn from your sanctification and apply them to other people. But you have a job to get out of bed in the morning and pursue holiness to pursue rightness before God because God wants to work incredible wonders in your life. And if he works those incredible wonders on a day when you've decided not to care, well, it's going to be a lot like going to the dentist without anesthetic, except for your whole body, for all your relationships and all the things that you've thought and hold dear outside of God. Your story to this point has supplied you with all the evidence you need to not only know that God is real and a rewarder of those who seek Him, but to know that in yourself you are unholy and unworthy and unclean. And you need to take steps to prepare yourself for the wondrous working of God. The second thing to see in here is that God's way is the only way. It's not a way that can be manufactured. It's not a way that can be mimicked or recreated without Him. His way leads us across the river that we are right now looking at that blocks us from His full blessing. This is an archetype of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one cometh to the Father but by Me. You can try to do it a lot of different ways. 
when I got saved, part of my testimony is that one of the first things I tried was to add Jesus to my life. And I didn't wind up saved. Because you can't do it that way. I didn't know that. Didn't understand that. But that was one of the first things I tried to do. I tried to add Jesus to my life. But he just won't be added. He won't be. Then finally I realized what I really had to do was just give my life to Jesus. That he'll do. Without fail, every time he'll do it. It's not about the words you say. It's not even about that one choice that you make. That one choice that you make is a step to be sanctified, to be holy so that he can work wonders in your life. It's really about his grace. And he will give what you do not deserve and cannot deserve, no matter what your efforts, no matter how far you've gone or where you've looked, what other things you've tried, he will give what you cannot deserve by grace because the penalty for your sins has been visited upon his son Jesus. And behold, it says in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The moment that God said, no longer must man remain back away from my presence. No longer must man be held at bay from God because Jesus has taken the penalty. It was when Jesus died and the four inch thick curtain in the temple that was 20 feet tall and separated the Jewish people from the holiest of holy places and then outside where the Jewish people were allowed to be was where the Gentiles, that's us, were allowed to be and the curtain ripped from the top to the bottom, which is significant because if God's going to rip something, you think you're going to rip it from the top to the bottom, God doesn't need a ladder. Anybody else would have. And the holiest of holy places, the presence of God himself, became available to us while we were yet sinners. God promised if you will just allow him he will move you into his presence. He will work in you and do wonderful and amazing things. Hear me now. Joshua said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow God will do wonderful things amongst you. And I'm here to tell you, it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. And every day now is the tomorrow in which God wants to do wonderful and amazing things. From the book of Exodus, make a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely spun linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it. From the book of Numbers, whenever the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons are to go in to take down the veil of the curtain and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And from the book of Hebrews, the New Testament, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. From the book of Mark, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From the book of Luke, the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn down the middle. From the book of Matthew, when the centurion, it's a Roman soldier, and those with him guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly this was the Son of God. I know they didn't know what they meant. But that's what they said. From the book of Luke, 
When the centurion saw what had happened, he gave glory to God, saying, Surely this was a righteous man. God has torn the veil, and we live in the era of the veil-torn life. But until the moment that you truly accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you actually lived in the camp at the side of the river where they are now. Thinking about how we're pretty sure God might keep his promises one day. Thinking about how maybe the river would be parted. And you know what? If the river doesn't get parted, then we'll just all go home, right? Half committed. Called of the Lord to be totally committed. Not to add Jesus, but to surrender to Jesus. Not to force yourself to go to worship, but to want to worship. Not to debate with yourself how much money to give, but to recognize that all of the money belongs to God. Not to debate with yourself about whether or not you should be watching the rated R movie with the little naked girl bouncing around, but to know that that is not appropriate for a man of God. Not to debate with yourself whether or not you should be friendly or hospitable to the people that run into the street or the guy who cuts you off in traffic, whether you should flip him the bird or cuss him out or love him, but to love him because you were worse than he ever was and now are saving on your way to heaven. God wants to work wonders in you and you live in the day in which he will do it now. Has been doing it ever since I got here today. Don't close him out. Every evidence is there. And now you see that he has provided the way, which is his son Jesus. You need to take a step. You need to believe in earnest and surrender your life in, in absolute everything. In totality. That's the word I was trying to come up with. One point left. And then the conclusion. This one's the tough one. They devoted themselves to God. We see that. And I, I want to say to you that there are a lot of people who got up this morning who speak the Arabic language and devoted themselves to God. Did you know that the word Allah simply means God? Now they have a misconception. That, and if they're out there and right now plotting my demise or something, that's fine. I'm okay with that because I'm, I'm trusting in the Lord when I say this. But the bottom line is they have the mistaken misconception of who God is. They misinterpreted the evidences. And I think that there are other ways to have God work wonders in your life. I'm not even going to say to you today that God cannot work wonders in their life. I believe He can. I believe He probably does. What I am saying to you is they got out of bed this morning and devoted themselves to God, and yet, unless God should see His infinite wisdom to bring them to Christ before they die, will burn in hell for an eternity. I don't care if they die in a holy war, which they believe they'll get whatever 70-some virgins or something if that happens, or not. If they don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which is the only way provided, they will die and go to hell. Even though they got out of bed this morning, devoting themselves, they call him Allah, but the word means God, devoting themselves to God. It's a misconception of God. But they prayed more than you did, and they served more than you did. They worked harder than you did today to devote themselves to God. And so that's a real problem, isn't it? 
Because you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, are going to go to heaven one day. And men who got out of bed every day, able to recite verses of their holy book, whipping through their prayer beads, on their knees, facing the right direction, will go to hell for an eternity, and you will go to heaven if you have genuinely turned your life over to Christ. Therein lies the contrast, because if you have genuinely turned your life over to Christ, then why does your devotion not look more like their devotion? Why does it not look more like a life totally surrendered to Jesus? Oh, because God loves us, and he sent his son so that we may have life and have it more abundantly. That's why I still have all of these things in my life that the world also has. I'm just wiser than they are and know better how to use them. And so I get to go to heaven even though I like these things more than my Bible. I get to go to heaven even though I like these things more than my Jesus. And let, let me say that differently this way. Even though I like these things more than sacrificing for God. But I'll still get to go because salvation is by grace. And yet this verse says... They could not come into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. God could not do wonders amongst them because they had not consecrated themselves and they set about to make themselves holy, to do what was right, to do work, to be holy, in order that God would work amongst them? No. God had already said he was going to do that. In order that God could work amongst them? No. God had already said that he was going to do that and he was going to do it whether they liked it or not. Why? Well, they didn't do it to get God to act, but in order to not be a contrast or a contradiction to his action. In Ephesians 2, it says, you too were once objects of wrath. Talking about salvation here, it says, we once worked in opposition to God. If you don't devote yourself to God and live for God, you are working in opposition to God. Saved or not, but it's a contradiction when you are saved and working in opposition to God because you say, I have a Lord, he is my Lord, he tells me what to do and I do it, yet you don't do it. So either you're lying or you're just taking a break. And I didn't hear in the profession of him as Lord, I, I, I profess him as Lord, but I'm going to take some breaks along the way. That's not really in there, is it? And so we do our acts of holiness we do our spiritual disciplines to be prepared for God to work in us so that when God works in us, we will not be found to be in opposition to God. Are you following that logic? They waited by the riverside. They consecrated themselves by the riverside while they were waiting. For three days, they waited. If the timeline is clear enough, and I'm not sure this is exactly accurate, but if the timeline is, timeline is clear enough, it was on the third day that they waited that they consecrated themselves. Being ready is about dealing with obstacles to whatever you're waiting for to happen. Okay, now I'm going I'm to say this. I was a young married person once. I am still married, but I am not so young anymore. And I know there are some young Marys in here, and you will resonate with the statements, probably uh, all over the room. And there are some folks that remember, if you're an older Mary, I hope you remember this as history. I hope it's ancient history for you, but it may not be. And so if it isn't, you need to be aware. It happens all the time at my house. It used to happen all the time between me and my wife. 
Time to go. Got to get these kids home and get them to bed. Can we go now? Can we go now? Okay, it's time to go. So I say to my wife, it's time to go. I'm sitting there. She's talking. She gets up and she says, okay, can we go now? And I say, I've been waiting for you for 15 minutes. Because I was sitting there on my butt, not doing anything at all to further the process. I wasn't sitting in the car or standing outside the door or giving words of encouragement or affirmation. I, I might say, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, or I might say, well, and then I'm afraid to say anything else because I don't want to have a fight or whatever. Waiting for someone is about removing the obstacles before they are in the way of whatever it is that's about to happen. Back in the day, we had one little girl, Alicia. We'd go pick her up from the babysitter together. Rarely, but it did happen. She'd get her diaper changed, and then I'm on the floor playing with her, and I say, I'm ready to go whenever you are. She'd be talking to her mother, and then a few minutes later, she'd say, are you ready to go? And I wasn't. And I'd say, I'll be ready in a minute, and I'd get up. What did I just do? I said, I'm ready to go whenever you are, but I wasn't ready. And that's what we did. We're busy watching football on TV while the kid's still running around, and it's time to go. If you're ready, you remove every obstacle that's in the way of the thing happening that you can control. You can't control everything. Your spouse is still involved in a conversation. You can get all the kids ready. You can pack the diaper bag. You can, do everything. you can put them in the car. You can wait in the car. You can take them out of the yard. Play by the car. So you're as ready as you can possibly be. But don't say you're ready if you're not ready. And that's the problem in Christianity today. Why is God not doing more wonders amongst us? Because we say we're ready. But what steps are we taking to move obstacles out of the way that are under our control? When was the last time you examined what you're watching, what you're listening to, what you're reading? When was the last time you went out of your way to read in the Bible about something that was a question for your day, and then you said, oh, I think God wants me to do that, and you went immediately out and did what it was that God wanted you to do? That's spiritual disciplines, and it's consecrating yourself. Prayer is like that. Worship is like that. The Bible is like that. Bible memorization is like that. Witnessing is like that. Evangelism is like that. These are the things that God has commanded us to do. And the only thing you can do to be more ready for God to do something in you is to remove the obstacles to his work. Because you cannot make him work. Oh, but wait a minute. Can you make him not work? If you fail to remove the obstacles, does that make him not work? No, it doesn't. If he's going to work, he's going to work. You're just not going to get the blessing. Or you may, the work he does may actually be to chastise you. They devoted themselves to God not to get God to act, because that was certain it was going to happen, but to not be a contradiction or a contrast to his action when he did it. Are you praying for something? Are you sitting by the side of a river of difficulty? A job is there, or a, a health issue is there, or a relationship struggle is there, and you're praying, God, move in a miraculous way? How much of your time is spent, God, please bless me and give me what I want, and how much of your time is spent devoted to what God has called you to do. God has already promised He wants to do wonders in your life. 
He's already going to do amazing. Many, most of us have already seen amazing, amazing things. And some of it would call out and say, God did an amazing thing. And we witness about it. And that's enacting a spiritual discipline. And some of us say, no, I'm waiting for that one amazing thing that I feel like God has promised me he's going to do and he's not doing it and I don't understand. You better submit more of your time to becoming holy and less of your time to begging over and over and over again for God to do something. Okay. We're going to read one passage of Scripture and then our conclusion and we're done. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. If you're following along or if you're on version, it's there. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. What are these things? He's talking about the things he was just talking about. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected it is received, if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer, made holy by means of the word of God and prayer. And he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. For godly discipline is only a, I'm sorry, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is. For this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Some things are identified with God and these things are so close to Him that they become likened to Him. They are not Him, of course, but are to be treated with great reverence as His representative but then never mistaken for him. This rule should be applied to people as his representatives. In other words, you should treat all people with great respect. You understand? All people of all walks of life, all people should be treated with great respect. However, if they do not accept God and they do not accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God will eventually do away with them. He will move them away from us. That's not up to us. If they are teaching and actively working against God now, then you should distance yourself from them because God is still going to do wonders in our lives and we need to be ready. We must live here and now as if we have won the victory as if we are prepared to win the victory, we must cleanse ourselves because we are in the presence of the Holy God. We repent, that means we turn to God again because He offers us repentance. 
We turn from all of our wicked ways and love Him with our whole heart. God removed the barrier of a lack of holiness through Christ. To come into the presence of a holy God unclean and unworthy would mean certain destruction. And no amount of spiritual disciplines would change that except that God has restrained that destruction by His grace. In other words, the very things that God gave us to prepare ourselves for His presence show us our need of His presence. So you pray to God, and we hear things like, well, I pray, but I don't hear anything, or I don't see anything happening. You need God's presence in your life. You pray and you worship God and you say, well, I worship God, but I don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't seem to be moving. You need God's presence in your life. We live rejected until we're not. And Jesus made it so that no one has to be rejected. But you can't add him in. Not by any amount of spiritual devotions not by any amount of spiritual disciplines. We talk about these spiritual disciplines in the, in, the, in the year one book. And it guides people to steps that they can take to begin to enact the spiritual disciplines. And when I wrote that page, I was almost trembling because I thought to myself, what if people come and they read this book and they begin to enact these spiritual disciplines, but they don't get saved. And they begin to feel saved because they begin to feel holier and they really aren't any holier or any more ready for God to do amazingly in them. And I thought, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put the spiritual disciplines in there. And the Holy Spirit said to me, no, 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 you have to put them in there because these are the things that God has given you once you have gotten saved to remind you that you need to be holy for God, to remind you that God needs to work in you in order for you to arrive at your end destination because no path that you have ever seen will take you where Jesus is taking you. So put them in there. And the Holy Spirit is saying to me now, to you, consecrate yourselves because in this day God wants to do wonders amongst you. And you can't stop Him from doing that. And you don't want to experience what it's going to be like when he does his wonders in you and you're not ready. Don't be a contradiction. Don't be a contrast. Love God and love your neighbor with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray and read your Bible and worship, not just at the commanded appointed times that we schedule, but every day. Serve and give every day. If I asked how many people read your Bible every day, I'm scared to see what that number of hands would be. I, read the, I have that version app on my phone, and it says I've read my Bible every day for 285 days. But I know that's not true. Because sometimes I just deleted the notification and didn't read it. How many of us are every day devoted to finding God, to serving God, to allowing God? And that won't make God act, but it will just get you so that you're not a contradiction to Him, you're not a contrast to Him when He does act. How many of us are faithful with our tithes? How many of us show up at team ministry meetings? How many of us get down on the floor and admit to God that if it were not for Him, we would be nothing? 
have you just added Jesus to your life? Are you still sitting by the river thinking God's going to do something amazing? Maybe. Maybe He's going to do something amazing. Or have you already seen God do something amazing? And now you're sitting by the river of a certain obstacle wondering if God will do that wonder. I wonder if God will do that. You remember the verses that Alicia read? Wherever two or more gathered, He is with them. And whatever we ask the Father, He will do in our name. In His name, in the name of Jesus. Power, like we do not know, is available in the God of the universe. He promises it. We don't have it because we are not devoted to Him and removing ourselves as an obstacle to His action. He doesn't want to crush you any more than He wanted to crush Jesus. He wants to bless you and empower you and make you incredible. Make you that baffling person like what Whitney was talking about that just goes and blows up the room. That's what he was saying. I know we're not all that outspoken personality, and you might have to do it another way. God is sending cards or serving or figuring out or, or networking people or whatever your way is. You should be doing it every single day in preparation for the wonders that God is going to work. Devote yourself. Become a devotee of your master. Let's pray together, and then we'll have a hymn of invitation, and this, this hymn will be a moment of decision as well, where you might say, I truly want to give my life over to the Lord, or I truly want to do this thing that I know that God is calling me to do. I want to become the person. And if you do, then you will devote yourself. Father in heaven, would you move amongst us? We know it is your desire to do that it's not tomorrow, but today that you're working wonders. Today you're giving us this truth. Today that you're calling us into your presence and, and, and that you're coming into our presence. And that now, through your Holy Spirit, you take up presence and live in every believer. And that that would be enough alone to make us wholly different, completely different from everybody else, not of this world. But then we're supposed to actually live that out. We're supposed to actually devote ourselves to the spiritual disciplines that you've given us. That godly discipline in us is supposed to be in every day, really maybe every moment. God help us. If there is someone here in this room who has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they have not said, I give over my complete control of my life. I let my sins go to the wayside. I don't want to do those things anymore. I turn from them, and I want to be wholly made new by the God of the universe through His Son, Jesus. But if they've never done that, then Lord, right now while I'm praying, you let them do that. Call them to do that. Let them make that decision, but not just a decision, just to turn it over, just to surrender completely to you. There's someone here today who has already done that, but like those describing people, they've sort of walked away or they've gathered back in certain activities. Lord, let them repent and devote themselves to you again. Let them repent and renew their commitment to you and their devotion to you that in all things, in all decisions, you would be first. There's someone here today who knows what it is that you're calling them to do, the kind of service you're calling them to do. Lord, let them commit themselves right now during this prayer to take those steps so they will not be a contradiction to you as you work into wonders. And there's someone here today, Lord, that knows that you call them for this to be their home church. And you let, let them know, Lord. Let that be their act of devotion today. To come forward in front of this body and say, I will stand for Jesus as we unite fellowship. And to be baptized or to begin a search. 
or to put off a specific sin, or to work in us. And we appeal to you, I like to say it this way, again today, but for some of us it may be the very first time, for some of us it may be the very most needed time ever. Lord, help us to feel ourselves moving into the presence of God. We're fearful what may happen, what will come. We devote ourselves to you, trusting in the way that you will make That we will be safe, that we will have no fear whatsoever, but we will know your perfect love perfect love that's out here. Lord help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have the praise team come and lead us and this will be our final song of our service today. But if the Lord has spoken into your heart and needs you to respond and you come forward let us know what's on your heart today. And if you would and you're able to do something you stand and sing the song with us. But if you're making some kind of decision then you just come. You just come. God loves you and wants to work wonders in your life. It's simply a total surrender and then an ongoing devotion to the Lord of the universe. That's what Christianity is. Not perfect.
Brother Tony and I had uh, what I would say was a very powerful moment standing up here. He came up here and told me the story of my recent life. Uh, you can go into the exact same thing that I've been going through. And, um, and I know that this message is spoken to me, and I think to him, and we want to devote ourselves to God. And, it, and I, we said it, I said it this way, and I think it resonated in him, that even without that which we want, if we, we lose, or we suffer, or sacrifice, or if it takes persecution, God, I don't want any of those things. If that's what it takes to move, move me to the place that I am daily devoted to God, that I am sold out for the Lord, that God owns and controls my whole life, then I'm, then I'm ready. I'm willing. So be it. And I, I don't know of any other way other than to just say, okay, God, I'm ready. And then let him do it when he wants to do it. And in the meantime, devoting ourselves to the spiritual disciplines so that we are prepared when that happens. And, and when I say the spiritual disciplines, I'm talking about the acts that the Bible tells us we can do to draw closer to God, to better know God, to improve our godliness. That's reading your Bible and praying, witness and evangelism and worship. And the list goes on. And uh, there's probably 40 of them, and I'm only really familiar with the top 10, the top 10 most common ones. And, I, and so I'll be, one of the things I'll be doing is going into study and find out what those other things are but then, not just to study them, to do them. And then God will do whatever it is that God wants to do, because he already said he would. And then, wherever I wind up, I can go back to my whole life. And I would ask you to do the same. If you're here today, and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never said, okay, I realize I am distant from God, and without an action of God, I will not be close. But I believe that Jesus was that action, that Jesus died for me and paid the price for my sins, and that by truly surrendering my life to him, I can guarantee my eternity. And you're willing to do that for the first time ever in earnest today. No more public response, no, no necessity of coming to the room or speaking, but from right where you are, if you're willing to do that for the first time ever today in earnest, would you raise your hand right where you are? Just say, that's me. I accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's one, two, any others? Amen. If you're here today and you say, I am a believer, Lord. I believe in Jesus. But I know I have not been practicing the spiritual discipline. I know I have not been disciplining myself. I know I have not been devoting myself to follow God the way I should. But I'm willing to do that beginning today. I'm willing to commit myself. Just as I would work to make an income, I surely can work to save my soul. And you can't save your soul. You can't. Only Jesus can do that. And, you, and Jesus has already done that in you, but you're willing to devote yourself beginning today to the pursuit of it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul said. If you're willing to do that beginning today, would you raise your hand right where you are? And my hand is up. This is my hand up. Amen. Many of us. Let us be devoted to our king and to our king alone. Many good things in life. So many good things. You've got to sort out what's from God and what's not. That's part of the job. We're going to pray in closing, and then we're going to go forward, and we're going to read our Bibles. We're going to tell people about Jesus, and we're going to worship, not just on Sunday or Tuesday, but every day. And I encourage you to get that list of spiritual disciplines and do every single one of them every single day. And if it's 10, make it 40. But probably, I guess you're going to find out it isn't even 10. Okay. Prayer needs prayer. Okay, prayer needs prayer right now. Okay. And we're going to pray for Pray with 
In between every sentence I'm about to pray, I'm going to intentionally pause for a few seconds so that you can talk to God. Spiritual disciplines. Prayer. Okay? Here we go. Father in heaven, you are our God. We thank you for moving in our midst. We praise you for saving those souls who come afresh to you today. We agree together and beg you on behalf of our brother Terry. We know you know exactly the right things to do to wonders to work in his life and in ours. Go out from this place. Empower us to be the people we're supposed to be. Drive us by the recognition of your grace to our knees to pray, to our Bibles to read and study and memorize. Help us to work to devote ourselves to be holy like you. We know we could not make ourselves holy, but Jesus by his sacrifice has done that. Now we just want to live according to that truth. Help us, God. This last part I'll ask you to say with me. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Go you therefore and be the church.